So growing up outside Rochester, New York, all Elizabeth Mickey Brina knew was that she was different, an outsider, and she blamed her mom, a first-generation immigrant from Okinawa for it all. Elizabeth's mom was working as a nightclub hostess on U.S.-occupied Okinawa when she first met the American soldier who was deployed during the Vietnam War and would eventually become her husband. And leaving her home, her family, friends, and culture to move to the U.S., the language barrier and power imbalance that defined their early relationship would follow them into the predominantly white upstate New York suburb where they moved to raise Elizabeth, who would then feel perpetually othered among her friends and her peers, turning that feeling into this cocktail of anger and rebellion. And decades later, Elizabeth came to recognize the sense of shame and self-loathing that haunted both her and her mom and began this process of reconciliation, not only to come to terms with the embattled dynamics of her family, but also to reckon with the injustices that reverberate throughout the history of Okinawa and its people. And she came to see the profound courage and strength and saw her parents' enduring marriage in a very different light. We dive into this journey, which is beautifully detailed in Elizabeth's haunting memoir, Speak Okinawa, which is this heartfelt exploration of identity, inheritance, forgiveness, and really what it means to be at peace with who you are. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. 
there's so many things I'd love to explore with you. But I mean, I think there, there's this really interesting starting point for me, which is I knew nothing about Okinawa, but for one thing. When the first time I heard um, of Okinawa, it was in the context of the sort of famous blue zones. You know, so mm -hmm. it was this notion that there are a handful of these places around the world mm -hmm. where people seem to live forever mm -hmm. and be mm -hmm. astonishingly healthy, mm -hmm. you know, like until sort of like the, the latest days where there's an unusually high number of people who are over the age of 100. And Okinawa is one of those. Mm -hmm. and, and when people try to deconstruct, well, what's going on here that would make that happen? Like the, the thought process was from the researchers, well, it's, it's a blend of community and ikigai. You know, like a clear reason to get up in the morning. And it was mm -hmm. primarily with um, Okinawan women, not men, actually. Mm -hmm. So I had, it had always been on my radar in that context. And I'm thinking, wow, it must be this just sort of magical place that's always been that way. Mm -hmm. And you sort of, you open and then pepper through the book that the history is, is actually way more complex and complicated and in, in entire, you know, generations and seasons really dark as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought of that too, how, how long people live there. And at first I was told that it's the diet, you know, like of a diet and the climate and, uh, um, uh, things like that, like f physical things. But uh, then it it became, I became aware of the fact that the, this tight knit community, right? Like they are, um, they're never lonely. Like there's always, when I went to visit my family, they're just constantly doing things together and sharing and that can help you uh, live longer as well. And I'm also think trying to attach, like how did that come to be? And maybe it is because of this dark history as well. Like all they have is each other uh, through a lot, of, a lot of the time. And they're also, in my experience, a very uh, grateful people. They're just so happy for what they have. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think when you go through something like that together, it really uh, binds you to each other and to a place too. They're very happy and proud to be on that island. And I am too, uh, um, whenever I'm there, I, I do feel that, that I'm so glad that this is where I came from. So when, when you use the phrase, when they, when you go through something like that, um, share a bit of what we're talking about <laughs> here, because people probably don't have a lot of context. Yeah. Um, where do I start? Uh, well, it was a colony of China, uh, for a very long time, a tributary of China. And then for a long time, uh, since about 1600s, I believe, it was a colony of Japan. I know 1600s is a very, <laughs> I don't remember the uh, precise date at this moment, but uh, um, so it was a colony of Japan and they've been uh, subjugated most of their lives, but still uh, left to their own devices, got to maintain their culture uh, until it was annexed to Japan in 1879. And then they were, it was always lesser, right? They were part of Japan, but not really. They had that kind of in, that inferior status. And, and it really, their economy uh, suffered from it. Their, their way of life suffered from it. Their, their language was forbidden. Their history was just banished and replaced by Japanese history, right? And so like, you don't get to have your history and yet you don't get to fully belong to us. Uh, to us, with us. So that, uh, that part of it. And then 
during World War II, they, they used Okinawa, Japan, uh, as sort of a, like a last line of defense when the U.S. were, were taking back the, the territories that they had conquered. And they thought, uh, okay, well, if we can hold the U.S. on this island um, and just, just punish them, just show them what we're capable of, the kind of fighting that we're capable of, then maybe that will deter them from coming to the mainland. And so they, it was a plan just to have the most bloodiest, brutal battle in Okinawa and all the people that uh, suffered from it, uh, that had no, no stake in it, in the war. So about 100 and this number in my research changes a little bit too, depending on what uh, source, but about 140,000 Okinawans uh, were killed. Which at that time is what, about a third of the population? A third, yeah, exactly. The, a Which third is, of the population, I mean, right. Stunning. Yeah. And right, can you imagine just a third of your island gone? And that doesn't account for right everyone who was starving, all the injuries, and also after the island was crushed, hundreds of thousands of bombs were dropped on that island for 82 days. Uh, so just the complete devastation to see your your homeland charred black. I, I remember just reading the images of like it's it's black, it's ash and what that would do to your psyche. And so then afterwards, for a long time afterwards, the, the whoever survived was homeless for many years and uh, lived in camps. Yeah, I know you, you tell a story of, um, I guess it was your grandmother, mm-hmm. who basically had been storing, stowing um, potatoes mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. a, and effectively like just had the family take everything they could and yeah. and basically just live wherever they could in the mountains, live away, like just surviving as long as they could on those, which ended up being a, a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, right afterwards, they just they just had to scavenge. So they knew it was coming. They were they were preparing. The whole island was preparing, storing food, and then uh, when the, the food just ran out, it was eighty two days, right? And everything there's nothing growing anymore. <laughs> um, and all the animals are dead and. So after that, yeah, just, just scavenging. And that's one of the, and my mother was born three years after World War II, which you think kind of like, oh, three years, that's a, they, you know, <laughs> maybe they could clean it up. And, uh, um, but she says that all she does is remember just being starving, just hungry all the time. So it took a, it took a really long time to recover. Yeah. After the war, you know, the U.S. kind of moved in and mm-hmm. then over a period of years and I guess even decades, you know, in the beginning, it sounds like there was no rebuilding effort because it wasn't seen as the type of place that the U.S. was obligated to invest in. Mm-hmm. But eventually they started to really, I guess, you know, realize it played a, a pretty big strategic role and wanted to set up a very large presence there and started to rebuild the island. But even during that window, I mean, it seems like it was, it took a really long time and the way that people were treated was pretty horrific. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a really long time until, you know, yeah, and, and even, it sounds like even when your mom, you know, was in her teens and then uh, a young woman, you know, it was still a lot of poverty, a lot of extraordinary hardship. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, there was the, a certain presence that was kind of living okay. And then, uh, you know, which was largely U.S. military. And then there was the rest of the island. Right. And to have just no agency, that took me a while to get inside that uh, mindset because I grew up in America where we're, you know, we, 
we, we think we can do anything, you know, like we grow up thinking like I can do anything, right? Like that's, that's what we're told. And she, she had grown up in this, in a time where everyone was just so much grief, right? So much grief and so much suffering and so much, this happened to us. We didn't, you know, like we have no control over it. Uh, people keep doing things to us. And with the militarization too, they had no say in it. All these decisions were made without their voice. Uh, and all the crimes committed by the U.S. military too, just in the aftermath. Like, so, so even after all the death and destruction, then the crime, right? And the accidents, like all the jets that crashed on the island and uh, vehicular homicide, uh, not to mention just the, the murders and, and rape. So it's still this like people just do things to us and they get away with it, right? And to grow up with that point of view, right? The lingering effects of that. Yeah. It's sort of like the, you know, trauma is baked into the DNA. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of your existence. Exactly. exactly. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just part of your, your daily existence. Um, your mom ends up meeting your dad. So your dad grew up in a profoundly different way. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I feel like you really couldn't have picked it like a more opposite <laughs> rearing, right? Um, he is extremely privileged. His father was uh, the owner of a, a telephone answering service, one of the first telephone answering services in New York City. I always think that's kind of a cool business. They took messages for companies and also this is kind of funny too because he still does this to this day. It was a wake up service too. They would call. It would be like your alarm clock. Some people like to just have a phone call, like a you know, like at a hotel that they used to do. Um, and he always did that for me for a really long time. Just would call me to wake me up. He'd be my alarm clock. But he, uh, yeah, and he grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan in a just a beautiful condo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and went to private school on Park Avenue, went to a Jesuit university. He's like a, he's very, very highly educated. And, and my mother had to quit school uh, before she finished eighth grade. So it's just this complete opposite backgrounds. <laughs> yeah. So they end up, the, the intersection then is um, your dad ends up joining the military. Yes. Yes. And I guess this was during Vietnam. So he ends up over there and also ends up spending time uh, in Okinawa. Mm-hmm. And that's where they meet, where he's a soldier, like deployed, but sort of like, you know, like taking a, a break when he's on Okinawa, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then him and your mom connect. And the, the way you describe it is sort of, um, they didn't seem like they were the, the, the most aligned people in the planet, but there was something that each saw in the other that mm-hmm. said- Okay, so maybe this is going to get me where I want to be. Yeah. On multiple yeah, exactly. levels. Exactly. Yeah, they both uh I think they were both fulfilling fantasies, right? And they're they're both dreamers. Uh, and that's something I it took me a long time to to understand that. Like I, I cuz I always thought what did they see in each other? Like what could possibly but my mother she grew up in this island that was so subjugated and then saw Americans as this power, status, like freedom. And so she had in her mind from a young age that she, she just wanted to marry an American. She just, she wanted to get out of Okinawa. And my father uh, had, after he had been fighting in Vietnam, he always had an affinity for, for Japanese culture. He was very obsessed with samurai. 
and that's one of, you know, why he joined the military too. It's like, I, I want to, I want to be this noble warrior. I want to save people. And that's kind of where his mentality was coming from too. It was part of this attraction that it is this, this kind of mutual objectification or romanticization of each other. And also not to mention that, and it took me a while to understand this too, because they're my parents. But when I see pictures of them, I'm like, they are beautiful. Like they were both just so good looking that I, you know, okay, well, so that was probably uh, <laughs> maybe 95% of it, uh, <laughs> right? As, a, as a, just the traction goes. Uh, so yeah, I think that all of that played into it. And another thing that they told me too, is that they both saw each other as different from everybody else. My mom said my dad acted different than the other soldiers. And my dad said my mom acted different from the other nightclub hostesses. So it's just, yeah, just that a little bit of standing out. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like for your dad that a sense of duty and honor Mm-hmm. is is just like it's it's what wakes him up in the morning yes um, yes you know it sounds like the way you describe him to this day it's that like that is the thing where you know like he is the protector he is that like does the honorable thing um mm-hmm. he he will make safety yep which for your mom at that point where you're essentially like you, you open your eyes and you're not safe yep you exactly. Know, um, beyond the attraction, beyond whatever it is, it's sort of like there's there are these two primal needs that somehow come together in this meeting. Right. So they seem like complete opposites, and that they it, it would never like how how could these people fall in love? But then when you think about it, and and all these factors, it's like of course, of course, that happened. Yeah. And I think safety a hundred percent on both their parts: the need to be safe and the need to keep others safe. Yeah. Your dad ends up back off of the island, but it sounds like they spend months still letter writing, mm-hmm. you know, like in two different languages and then finding yeah. people who can explain what is this way. And, and eventually, you know, they end up getting married and then they come back to the States, spend a little bit of time driving across the country, mm-hmm. which it, it sounds like, it actually sounds really sweet. Like the, your, like your dad is like, let me show you this vast land. Like I, I don't want to just take a plane to New York, but let's actually like, I want to show this to you. And was that your sense of, of what was really going on? That's, uh, that's so my dad. Uh, and I don't know because you know, my mom hates road trips. Like she just, (laughs) she hates being in a car. Every time we drove to, uh, you know, I grew up in Rochester and we'd always, uh, whenever we drove to visit my uh, parents in New York city, like she just slept the whole time and just like kept her eyes closed. (laughs) And, uh, um, I lived in uh, Montana and California uh, for for a few years, and that's and that's something my dad and I love. We love to just drive around. Um, I'm sure I I got that from him, but my mom didn't care for it that much. I remember we were going through Glacier National Park, going to the Sun Road, and my mom's doing Sudoku. <laughs> like, well, like you know, like these vistas are. Uh, um, so I don't know what her mindset must like was in that car, and I don't know. And I kind of also maybe. Uh, he traumatized her with road trips, perhaps, <laughs> after never having, because uh, Okinawa, you could drive across it in an hour. <laughs> and she's just spending days in this car. So I have no idea what it was like for her in there. And I, and I tried, to, tried to ask her and it changes, right? Your recollections of things change based, like what, whatever your current state sure. is. And so sometimes... It was, oh God, you know, that 
<laughs> why did he do that to me? And then sometimes it's, it was so much fun. Like I know, you know, like, uh, um, it was very exciting. And, you know, I think it was both, right? Yeah. It's that, it's that non-binary thing, right? It's sort of You're like right. <laughs> two things at once. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you, you get the feeling that, um, had your mom done that now, it like she was doing the analog equivalent of um, us just like being on Instagram the whole time, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, driving yeah. through national parks <laughs> with the most stunning things. In. It's like pick your head up, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Look, oh, right, right. And she would get out of the car and walk around, and be like, "Oh, this is beautiful," but like, for, yeah, just just inside looking is not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So as you mentioned, um, the family ends up um, just outside of uh, Rochester, which is, for those that don't know, it's kind of like upstate-ish New York. Mm-hmm. And so now you have your dad who, you know, like grew up in New York City and now it sort of like found his way to upstate New York. Your mom, who's come from this place and now she's dropped into this suburb of an upstate New York City, kind mm-hmm. of like, okay, so how do you make a life um, there? And then pretty soon after you enter the picture. Um, so I can't even imagine for her. Especially what those early years were like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. trying to first navigate a relationship with your dad mm-hmm. in this completely foreign place without the language, also, and also, the, you know, it sounds like there's um, there's this cultural. While on the one hand, like like the the roles that they both aspired to play kind of allowed them to to be the yin and yang, um, in the <clears> early <throat> days, you yeah. know, when you drop into everyday life. And then that becomes weeks and months and years. That becomes a lot harder to sustain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine the courage. I'm still like really in awe of it uh, to do something like that. To just um, have that much faith in yourself. I was just like, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave with this person. I mean, they knew each other fairly well, but still, it's like I'm gonna leave with this person, and this person is gonna be all I have. And the difficulty of just assimilating and the resistance that she got, I just, I'm so in awe of her strength that she was able to do it. She made very fierce attachments. Like whenever she, uh, I know that all the places that she lived uh, with my dad, even before I was born, it was uh, Chicago and Phoenix. She, I mean, she was completely isolated in Phoenix and Manhattan where, I mean, she had my, she had my, uh, grandmother. She had a very close bond with my father's mother. She was very grateful for her. But that's something that my mom, that's what she did. She just, she, she found a person that, and clung to this person, not, not in a needy way, but just like, we are, we are going to bond. We are going to make a strong bond. Kind of like what she did with my dad. She would have like one friend, right? And I remember she's still, and to this day, uh, Chicago is actually, is actually where I was born. I uh, I think I was only there for six months, though. But my parents lived there for five years, and she has one friend from that time, and who was also Okinawan. Mm. They just found each other. Thank God, <laughs> they still talk to this day. They're they're very close. So I'm grateful that she was is such a survivor. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, to hear the way that you reflect on it now, and I, and I want to explore that a whole bunch more. Mm-hmm. But those reflections didn't come early in life. I mean, cause, no. cause you, you're, you're growing up then, you know, as a young um, person in like outside of Rochester, New York, in a predominantly white suburb, it sounds like also. Yeah. And you've got a dad who quote fits in, you mm-hmm. know, but you've got a mom who also is really different from everybody else. Doesn't have a, a you know, like a really strong command over the language. And then you're the kid who's kind of, biracial although i do you even consider yourself that or like at, when you're a kid are you just kind of like i just know that i'm on the outside but but i really don't understand what's going on here mhm mhm yeah 
there wasn't language for it. There wasn't any way that I could articulate or explain it to myself. I don't know. I don't even know when I first heard the word biracial, right? I don't know when any of this started to make sense to me. Like, I wish I could pinpoint it. But as a child, I saw that my dad was the strong one. He fit into this world. He knew how to navigate it and he could teach me how. And I just saw that my mom was completely different from everyone else and didn't seem, uh, and, and this is this is a child uh, perspective, didn't seem competent, right? Like she can't do, she can't do anything for me. And so I, you know, I felt like disappointed in her, you know, as a child was just like, mom, you're supposed to take care of me. Like, why can't, you know, um, uh, um, help me through this and, and, uh, uh, so I rejected her. And I also, with myself too, I intuitively, even though I didn't know it, but or biracial, but intuitively I knew that my mom's the reason why I'm different. Uh, my mom's the reason why I don't belong here and I hate her. <laughs> um, that, that was the logic that, that went for. I, I blame her. I blame her. And, and, that, uh, and now growing up, right, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be on the receiving end of that. I don't even know how my mom dealt with that and survived that. I don't think, which is another testament to her strength. I don't know how she just just took it. It was always kind of like an elephant in the room, right? Like we never talked about it, but I'm sure she felt it. I'm her daughter, right? So she, I'm sure she felt it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you, you didn't talk to her about much. Mm -hmm. You know, there's those, the feelings that you're describing, but also it really just seems like and like, look, this is, it's not all that unusual that especially like a teenager and especially a teenage girl and a mom, there's, there's often a yeah. lot of friction, <laughs> right? And then there's a the classic rebellion that every teen has to have with a parent, you know? So yes, there's that, right? But what was laid on top of this was you judging her as lesser, less competent, less of a human, less mm-hmm. contribution, you know, like to your yep. life, to the family, really because- she was different and the thing that made her different made, you know, part of it, at least appearance wise, was passed down to you. And that mm-hmm. made you feel different. There's this visual reminder that that like this part of me that's making me feel like I don't fit in is coming from you. But there isn't the mature understanding of all the grace and the strength and the struggle that led to this moment in time. And also because there's a language barrier between you and your mom. There's, mm-hmm. it's really hard for her to even convey that to you. If, if at that age, you're even interested in that conversation, which right. wasn't happening. Yeah. I mean, it, she would try so hard and I mentioned this in the book, the drinking. I think that that, maybe that was just how she was like, I can, I can try to open up. She tries so hard to talk to me and to, t- and to tell me her, her stories and I was just so resentful of it, you know, like I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to hear this. This isn't, this doesn't fit in what I think my life should look like. Right. Like I, you know, I, I wanted very normal, typical American <laughs> uh, childhood and, and, and identity. Like that's what I wanted. I wanted whiteness, you know, I internalized all the, the racism and that was my goal. And so anything that she told me that didn't fit that, I really resented it. And also the, because of the language barrier, I couldn't, oh gosh, teenagers are so terrible. I didn't have the patience 
anytime she was looking for a word, anytime that she just repeated herself over and over again, I was so frustrated and again, still disappointed because I thought that it was her fault. You know, like why, why doesn't she speak English? Right? Like what, you know what I mean? Why <laughs> she should just learn. Right. And another, another, this uh, internalized xenophobia, like, oh, well, why don't they speak English? Right. Uh, and I'm directing that toward my mother. Yeah, and that's that silence was uh, very, very profound through most of our lives together is that I felt so uncomfortable in our presence, you know, but also at the same time, not like it's it's very strange. It's right. It's it's both. So I remember being uncomfortable, not knowing how to talk to her, but at the same time still feeling incredibly like safe around her just when it was me and her maybe there's a, there's a little bit of boredom because i thought like she can't right she can't say anything interesting to me but also i can't help but think that because of how close we are now through the writing of this book and the repairing of our relationship and and the ease i feel with her now that i can't help but think that it had to have been there all along something something right mm -hmm. there was a line that you wrote that um i'm trying to remember exactly it was something like i didn't want her to be my mom but i also didn't want her to leave and mm -hmm. it's like you're just constantly trying to struggle with those things you know to, to have that sense of like i know that like underneath this there's a thread of unconditional love like i am mm -hmm. she is here but at the same time i blame her for for all the reasons that i don't feel okay on a day-to-day -day basis yep exactly just kind of a brutal place to be you mentioned that like there's a, a window where your mom really started to drinking. And, you know, it sounds like in no small part, it, it was a coping mechanism because as she's living her life, she's being rejected by her daughter. Um, mm -hmm. You know, she's got a husband, you know, like your dad, who's, it seems like has always been very strong. It's been the rock has always been there to, to take care of her. And yet she is like waking up every day and almost grieving the loss of her culture, the loss of, you know, like the family that she left behind, even though there was so much struggle and so much poverty and so much violence, mm -hmm. it was what she knew. And every day that things weren't the way that she hoped that they would be when she had that fantasy, when she first met your dad, mm -hmm. you know, was, yeah. was another day that, that reminded her almost like of what she gave up mm -hmm. and alcohol to a certain extent becomes the, like a way to make it through the day. Absolutely. She drank to console herself, but also I think to make herself visible. I think mm -hmm. that was one of the ways that, because she was so disregarded by me and I think by, by others too, that maybe it was also a way to get attention just uh, uh, because if I drink this much, then it's like, everyone look at me. It's, it's very, it's, it's, it's hard to think about that uh, she had she had to live that way for so long. Um, but also I do want, just want to say to how, how impressed I am, like amazed that how she carved out these little moments of happiness for herself too. Um, you know, the, the, the fierce attachments that she would make with, um, friends at the restaurant at, at the restaurant too, is where, which is also sad because, in a way, she was. She got to be more herself there than at home. That was something I realized later. I mean, everyone who worked at that restaurant loved her. Uh, the younger uh, waitresses would call her mom. I remember one that, that was my age, and she was uh, from Japan. 
would call my mom crying um, and confide in her. And my, and I, I remember being jealous, right? Like, <laughs> because I couldn't, I couldn't do, th do that with her, just talk to her in Japanese and, uh, and just share something like that, like in a way that we both could understand, just so effortlessly explain to each other. And we developed that later on, this, this, this way of talking where we, we really, we speak in code, but it took, it took so long. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so interesting, right? For you to then see that and sort of like see glimpses of, oh, so I'm making all these assumptions about my mom. But then there are these moments where I see how she is with other people and mm -hmm. that she actually, she's the person that people go to and that mm -hmm. she's there and she's wise and she ha can have these deep yeah. conversations, but it's not happening with me. Right. You describe a moment where um, she really just, is struggling and kind of just has a meltdown and ends up under the table. Mm -hmm. And, and there's this realization that, you know, you crawl under with her. Um, mm -hmm. and, and where it's almost like, you know, the average impulse up until then is like, Oh my God, I can't deal with this again. Mm -hmm. But something in you at that moment is like, no, I, I need to actually be under the table with her, hugging her and crying. And, you know, it sounds like in that, that it, there was a moment where, something was revealed to you. Yeah. I, um, that stuck with me for a long, I was 26 at the time. And that memory, that moment stuck with me for a very, very long time. I trying to understand it because I didn't really know what, what was the impulse. I had to do a lot of digging and searching, uh, like why then? Right. And I think it's because at, at that point I was, I was 26 years old and I had, um, failed. <laughs> I had failed so many times, like just relationships and interactions of belittling. And I'd suffered, suffered as a woman and trying to, uh, trying to connect with other people and fa facing a lot of rejection. I think what I saw finally is that the world is a not nice place, right? Like the world can be a not a very unkind place and it, and it can do things to you and it's not your fault. Right. I always blamed her. I was like, this is her fault. Like, it, like well, the way the way that she is. Right. Um, she has control over this. And then I think I was getting to that point. I was just like, nope, sometimes <laughs> sometimes we don't. Right. Sometimes things just happen and we're and we're the way that we are because of what has happened to us. Uh, so I think, um, I, yeah, I was just becoming mature. I'm like, what would what would I want someone to do if I'm crying underneath <laughs> a table. <laughs> and, and that's what she was. She was, she wanted to be seen. Uh, she just wanted to be seen. So that's what we, and that's essentially what we all want, right? We want someone to just see us and hold us and just be there. Right? Yeah. I mean, but it, it's when that happens between a, a child and, and a parent, like a mother and a daughter, um, especially when there's so much strife before, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's the type of thing that I think most kids don't, ever really think about their parents as individuals with their own journeys and like what they struggled with and, and what's going on. And I think when something happens, whether it's just having lived long enough, having been through your own independent trauma or suffering or struggle, and then coming mm -hmm. back to a moment where just somehow it's like the veil is removed and you're like, oh, this person is a human being, you know, and, exactly. and there's a yeah. lot that's brought them to this point. And I kind of get it more now because 
I'm a lot younger. I haven't lived nearly as much life, but I've been through some stuff too. And it wasn't all mm -hmm. my fault. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. it's like it opens a vein of empathy. Yeah. And that's what it is. Just it's uh this person is human and because this person is human, this person is me, right? Because I'm human too. And through so much of our lives we're we're the center of the world and and just to finally be able to just to put someone else's situation in yours is the whole transference is it's a remarkable threshold, right? I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that's something that happens to everyone. Yeah. When I hear this and I, and I like what goes through my head is, you know, I think so often we look at another person and we kind of in our minds, we're saying like, you are the source of my trauma or your mm. existence is the source of my trauma. And then mm -hmm. sometimes we hit a moment where something is revealed and we're kind of like, no, actually maybe it's in part your trauma is in part the source of my trauma, um, mm -hmm. but it's not your existence. It's not your identity. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, okay. It really, it's, I think, I think it changes the way we experience both them and ourselves. It's like, yeah, it, it's like, we're in this together, right? It's just a moment of like, okay, like, well, I guess we're on the same side <laughs> yeah. because what, whatever's causing you to hurt is also what, what's causing me to hurt. Like you're not causing me to hurt. So let's, let's hug each other. <laughs> yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you think about um, like that moment, you know, like you said, you're 26, you're, you're still out in the world making your own life. You spend mm -hmm. a chunk of time in Montana and then uh, in Oakland, where it sounds like Oakland also for you, it's kind of this really eye-opening moment because the first time you're kind of like, oh, wait. So um, I think you're like, the words you used was like, it's the first time that you were, you felt seen, not exposed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Growing up in upstate New York, being one of the only people of color, 
I went to school in Boston and that who I surrounded myself with in Boston was all white people. I think that's because that's what I knew, right? And also because of the, the school that I went to and it was predominantly white. It can be a very segregated city where you can do that <laughs> if that's what you're looking for. And then Montana, of course, um, mostly white. But then when I got to Oakland, I mean, you it was one of the first cities where I was like, this is, they're everywhere. <laughs> you can't avoid them. You can't avoid them. And uh, uh, people of color, uh, they're everywhere and they're all mingling. And to see people who looked different, like nobody looked different because everyone was different, right? Like uh, um, uh, no, no one stood out. And then to see people who looked like me, it was powerful. And to see so many different types of people, just it's fine. We're all just hanging out. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I was saying. Like where before I felt eyes on me all the time, like even if it wasn't true, that's how I felt. I felt like, oh, everyone, okay, everyone's looking at me. And I, th and I think lots of people, like especially, you know, self-conscious children and teenagers, right? We're all feeling that way. But I, I felt, I just felt the very hyper awareness of my appearance all the time uh, because of uh, where I grew up in my, my heritage, but Oakland, I was like, oh, I can just blend in. It's wonderful. <laughs> and people get me. That's one thing that I really appreciated there too. It's just this very multiracial, multicultural, it was very matter of fact, you know, it just existed. So it was, that was, it was a great place for me. It was very eye-opening. Yeah. I mean, just to, to have that feeling. And then of course, you know, you go to the next logical place from there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is Kansas yeah. city. <laughs> right back. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, I know. Because <laughs> um, you got to keep sort of like swinging the pendulum. Um, yeah, so yeah. Like, oh, okay. But you end up, you know, like in a relationship, falling in love. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Together you move to Kansas city and then eventually to New Orleans, um, which is like this other sort of like really beautiful kind of like a lot of people use the phrase melting pot for New York. But I think New Orleans has a lot of that too. Mm -hmm. Yes. And engaged and and about to head on this big trip to Japan with your family to, or to go back mm. also to Okinawa. Mm -hmm. um, and right before that, you know, basically decide that the, this marriage is not going to happen, mm -hmm. but the trip still needs to happen. Yep. You know, <laughs> so you go back and, and now you're with your mom and your dad and now you have you know, like family there. And I mean, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because of the dynamic changes where all of a sudden, like your dad is the one with two feet on the ground who knows everyone, knows everything is the guide, the protector, the safety keeper, like, but it gets, kind of gets reversed there. Yeah. Yeah. And to see uh, my mother like that, I, I, a lot of things happen on that trip. It was so intense, so revelatory. Because uh, you mentioned about breaking up with my fiance right beforehand and having that experience and then seeing my parents together, I just appreciated their love for each other uh, in a way that I never had before. Because whatever they did, whatever, however difficult it was and whatever flaws, they made it work. You know, they just, they, they committed and they said, you are my person. And they just did that. And that was something that came out during that trip as well. And then also seeing my mother, like as an adult, seeing my mother with her family and seeing just the comfort and the ease, even after 40 years and seeing uh, what she left behind. It was a profound sacrifice and, and just trying to figure out why, why did she do that? Why did she do that? It's what launched me into 
wanting to tell the story. Yeah. When you see that, it seems like there was this gradual evolution over years of you just starting to really see your mom and see your mom and see your mom and also mm-hmm. not just your mom, mm-hmm. but your dad. And also, yep. you know, along the way, there's this, I, I think we all very often go through an evolution of how we, how we think about love. You know, like what, Absolutely. what is it actually? And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it sounds like, you know, when you're younger, you look at your parents, you're like, this isn't it. <laughs> right. Cause we all have this like, you know, like mad, romantic, crazy, passionate love affair. Type of thing. Uh-huh, yeah, and yeah. and like, often it starts that way. Right. And then, but it's sort of like with, with your perspective over time and just seeing them and seeing like, oh, so you know, like maybe love is like always being there. Maybe love is, mm-hmm. is protecting and not walking away when you want to. Maybe it's, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to see how we all sort of like step into and examine the notion of love and what it is and what it isn't. And what's it like, where's the threshold where it's okay for us to stay in it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a question I, I grapple with all the time. Like what is not okay? What should I not put up with? And I think part of it too, is that it has a lot to do with seeing my mother, right? We're like, no one wants to end up like their their parents. Like no one wants to end up like their mother. And, you know, it scared me for a long time too. It's like, I, I don't want to be in that situation. Anything that started to resemble it, I was like, got to get out. I'm going. <laughs> like, I'm getting out of here. But then, yeah, you get older and you are like, well, you know, like it could be worse, right? <laughs> what she has is, you know, it's, she chose it. Uh, ultimately, she chose it. I mean, the there are so many things that she didn't choose, right? There's so many things that she, she didn't have a choice uh, of what to do. But uh, ultimately, she chose my father. So I have to respect that. And I do. <laughs> yeah. And it, se- it seems like in this season of their life, it's the kind of thing where like, there's, there's often like a whole middle season where it's like from the outside in, you're just like, Why? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you reach a season in life where it kind of, you're, you're like, oh, I get it. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe even to them, they get it. You know, maybe they each had their own questions along the way, but, and I think a lot of it also has to do with sort of like the evolving definition, not just of love, but also like, what is the construct of marriage? And, and mm-hmm. we like to sort of like say, well, this is what it is and tell everybody else what it is, but maybe it's the notion of allowing people to like define it the way that is like really gives their life what it needs. Exactly. Exactly. It's just really like what works, right? Like just do, do what works, do, do it. However you need to figure this out. And I, yeah, I always thought that it was this image or this mold in my mind of, of what love is and what, what a marriage should look like. And yeah, exactly what you're talking about. This season of their lives, they're both 72 now. Wow, about to turn 73 very soon. Um, that's been really remarkable to watch them get closer still, even after all this, right? And the fact that like you're still settling into your choices at that age in life, right? You're st- you're still accepting them. Like you're still like just like. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, 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 uh, and yeah, they're at peace, uh, uh, for the most part, they're at peace with each other and peace with themselves. And that's what, what else could you ask for really when you get to that age? So, 
I'm happy for them. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, as we have this conversation, having gone through that experience with him, coming back from Japan, really seeing, like, getting this opportunity to see your mom in a profoundly different light and also to see their relationship. And then you step back into your life, you uh-huh. know, and you're like, okay, so I'm back. You know, the person that I was with for a chunk of time who I thought I was going to be with, that's not happening anymore. I've had these revelations about my past, my parents, and these concepts. Like when you when you step back into your own life, like how, do, how does that change the way that you do it? Oh, man. You know, part of the reason why it didn't work with my relationship with uh, um, my fiance and all the ones before that is because I didn't, I really didn't know myself. And also I didn't like myself. I really just, that inferiority that uh, I internalized for so long, I just, um, I was like, why would anyone want to be with me? And with him, I uh, was constantly questioning that. It's like, why do you want to be with me? Why do you want to be with me? Which exhausted him, right? He, he's like, I can't explain this to you anymore. Like, I have to go. Uh, and we're still very good friends. Like, we forgive each other. We understand. But I think that's where I, that's where I decided I need to start there. Like, I need to, you know, I need I need to figure this out. And it wasn't a conscious choice. Like, it's not like I I came back from Japan. I was like, I need to figure this out. Like, I need to figure me out. Uh, but that's just what I started to do. I started to just writing and being independent, just being on my own for a while. And then, but really like getting to know myself and then getting to just like myself and be proud. And it's so hard to like really explicitly connect the dots. But of course, seeing my, my mother with her family just had everything to do with that. I think maybe it was just, wow, there's a whole side of me that is good what my mom had with her family was just so beautiful. Like they they were so wonderful. So there's this whole side of me that is good that I don't even know anything about. So yeah, that's where the investigation <laughs> began. Yeah. You write, um, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to quote you the you. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> Which is always a little awkward. Oh. Um, you're right. I didn't realize, speaking of your mom, I didn't realize that she couldn't change history, that history wasn't her fault that she could never escape the legacy of defeat, of trauma perpetuated by her very own husband and daughter, that I could never escape either. Now, whenever I try to comprehend her loneliness, I'm completely overwhelmed by her strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that took a long time to get to. I'm 39 now, right? And I started writing this book when I was 34. Better late than never, right? But I, I do feel... I think of everything that we could have done if I had gotten to that sooner. I can't help it. I mourn it very often, but at the same time, just very grateful that I did come to it. Right? I did come to that understanding of her and, and, and that feeling towards her because I also see how much happier she is, right? Because she has her daughter, right? <laughs> so it's, I'm just glad we get to enjoy each other for the rest of our lives. Mm, yeah. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So sitting here in this container of a good life project, if I offer the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Um, I think living a good life is knowing yourself and being kind to yourself. And in doing so, being kind to others, 
because I said before, we're all just figuring it out. The world can be very threatening and scary. And so we should, we should help each other. We should give everyone the benefit of the doubt, right? And try to understand each other. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.